I've admitted to you before that I'm a bit of a, a news junkie. And I have to be careful with that. Well, I'm a bit of a news junkie, and I live among a people, to quote Isaiah. I live among a people who, if not news, are certainly media junkies. And that has its impact upon us. We get this information in, we get this perspective, we get this spin about something. And there's this, people talk about the polarization of our society today over one point of view or an opposing, a, an opposite point of view. Pick any particular topic that's of, of, um, of general, broader society interest. And there's a sharp view over here, and there's a just as sharp view over here, and they poke each other with them, Right? How does that come about? Well, we, we listen to our own source, and we get this information in, and the information incites us. They're trying to incite you. The more they can get you wrapped up and worked up about this, the more you're going to dig in and follow and, and follow the clickbait. And uh, along the way, as I'm listening to some of this stuff, or as I'm taking in some of this information, I'm reminded now and again that there's another agenda. Because along the way, in the midst of all this good and helpful information they're giving me, they want to sell me something. I should buy gold. Or I should fill my garage with emergency meals. Because I'm a Christian, I should fill, fill up my whole garage with meals for me and my neighborhood, right? Because I care about others. But the end is coming. Disaster is near. So you better buy these emergency meals, now I've just offended somebody whose garage is full of emergency meals. That's not my point this morning. My point is we are easily incited into actions for one side or another of the same circumstance or issue. And that happens in the story that I want us to read today. It's a story where David is incited into an action. And when we're poked, when we're pressed, when we're squeezed, what happens is what's in us leaks out of us. Sometimes it's not really flattering. That happens with David. When he's squeezed, when he's pushed, when he's incited, something that's in him leaks out of him and we, and we see it. And we're warned about it. Now, I'm, I, want to, I want us to read here in just a moment, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, but before we read, because I'm going to read it a little differently than what's in your, your um, Bible probably before you, I want to explain myself. It starts out, then Satan stood against Israel. Now, the problem with that is, well, let me teach you some Hebrew. The word, the Hebrew word for Satan is Satan. You got that? You know Hebrew. Look at that. The Hebrew word for Satan, the name Satan is Satan. Okay, so the word occurs many places in the Old Testament. Its most normal use, especially when it's as it is here without an article attached to it, just Satan, its normal use is as an adversary. For instance, the Philistines suspect that David is going to become their Satan, their adversary. They don't want him going into battle with them because they think he's going to turn and fight against them. Uh, in 1 Samuel, um, or 2 Samuel 19, David even calls Joab, his own commanding general, his Satan, his adversary, because Joab seems against him. Um, it's said that in 2 Kings 5, Solomon had no neighboring Satan, no neighboring adversaries. 
And later, Solomon does have Satan's adversaries, Edom and Damascus. So often the word is used as an adversary. If it's meant meant to describe a particular person, it normally has the article. That's the way you see it in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. It is Hasatan, which is the Satan, the adversary. So adversary is simply a descriptor of this personal being who stands against God and his people. Uh, the, the fallen archangel, also known, as, also known as Lucifer, we typically refer to him as the devil. He is the adversary par excellence. He's the chief adversary. The adversary. But that article doesn't happen here. And that's why if you're, if you're a Bible geek and you carry a net Bible around, the New English Translation... A few do, but it's, it's, it's got some helpful translations and, and great notes. But here, they translate verse 1 this way. An adversary opposed Israel, inciting David to count how many warriors Israel had. And that starts off the chapter with, we know what's going on. So I wanted to explain a little bit of Hebrew before we get started. Now, let's read chapter 1. And I, and I might um, skip over a couple of verses as we try to get most of the chapter in here. But let's stand together for, God's re- for, for the reading of God's Word. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, Then an adversary stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north. Bring me a report that I may know their number, how many soldiers I have. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. What does it matter how many there are? Are they not, my lord? The king, all of them, my lord, the king's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab because he's the king. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel there were 1.1 million men who drew the sword. Soldiers, warriors. And in Judah there were 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi or Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But even worse, God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly. It is in what I have done, this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer or prophet, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine, or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, disease upon the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what I answer, I shall return to the Lord who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. 
And the Lord sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And he was about to destroy it. The Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Let's jump down to verse 18. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons were with him, went and hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it. Let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offerings. The Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. You see, the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offerings, they were still at that time at the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord at this time, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to us through your word? Lord, would you speak to us about the cost of sin? Would you speak to us also about the cost of worship? Father, would you, would you help us to see how we should choose. Lord, would you put in us a willing heart, first of all, to trust you for your mercy, and secondly, Lord, to trust you in worship. Speak to us today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So in the story, David is incited. David is threatened. David is probably incited to marshal his troops, to register his army, to count his military resources because there's an external threat. David is a warrior king. He's dealt with this before. He knows how to respond. He knows what to do. And maybe that's part of the problem. In an av- when an adversarial nation provokes, David responds in a human, self-reliant defensive preparations. In verses 2 and 5, we see that David is eager to know how many men could he field, how many men can, can wield the sword in battle. He's counting his resources. He's going back to what he knows, what he will rely on and trust in himself. There's an application here. First of all, when danger or trouble reveals itself to us, what do we really trust in? Do we pray first or do we react first and pray later? 
Who do we trust in? I, 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 I remember being confronted with this years ago when we were in Southern Africa, and there's, a, um, there's a, a lot of spiritism in Southern Africa, but many people have become Christians. They've come to faith in Christ. And yet, one of the dangers they face because of the heritage and their culture and the strong weight of family around them is that when trouble comes, maybe a child becomes seriously sick and the medicine from the doctor hasn't been helping quickly Christians will return to the spiritist healer who would call on spiritual powers, demonic spirits, do incantations and use various kinds of charms, spiritist charms, to provide possibly healing for the child. It's a strong temptation. They have seen spiritual power there. So when it's their own child endangered, quickly they might run back and trust that child into this spiritist, animistic um, care, which is actually under the power of spirits and demons. But how do we respond sometimes when we're threatened? How do we respond when we fear, especially enemies that you cannot see, like a deadly disease, a, a, um, a pandemic that is sweeping over Israel and people are dying left and right? And, and how would we respond in that circumstance? Well, we had, we had an experiment something like that. And, and we saw how easily fear does overcome a people. How easily fear overcomes leaders who perceive themselves to be responsible to protect people. And rather than filling the churches and praying, we emptied the churches and ran to other, other resources. Why does Job warn that this is going to cause guilt to Israel. Why is it that 70,000 people die simply because of David's sin? Well, the parallel chapter in, in, in 2 Samuel 24 gives us a little more information here and there. there the chapters are almost identical with a few, other, a few details added one or the other. And one of the details Samuel adds is that the Lord was angry against Israel. And so he incites David to number them. So this is bigger than David, although there's a time when the high priest could sin and cause guilt to the nation. David can sin as king and bring guilt to the nation. But also it might be that David has his own... He's been here before. He's been in battle before. He knows what to do. He can rely on his military skill and strength. And maybe there's this confidence among some of his army as well. Maybe among the army, there are also those who are relying more on their military skill and strength than they are in calling on the Lord who said, you walk with me in my ways and your enemies will flee before you. That a thousand will, will, will run before one. And yet in this case, they seem to be relying on themselves and how many swords and men can they field in battle against a threatening enemy. Maybe there's, that, there's a confidence problem. Maybe that's why this is an issue of guilt for Israel and for David. We're not told, but we're told that Joab even gives an incomplete count. He doesn't even count everybody because the whole mess, he, he's not happy about this. But it's not just an ethical or pragmatically poor decision. 
This not only is important to Joab, but it displeases the Lord. David is, I think, incited to false confidences. And that's the first warning here. Beware of false confidences. Don't be incited to trust in that which cannot deliver us, that which cannot save us. That's what, that's what David is going to have the consequences. David's going to get a ticket here. David is going to pay a price for this false confidence. And yet, when David realizes very quickly what he has done and that it is wrong, in verse 7, God was displeased of this thing and David realizes it. And David says to God, I have sinned greatly. Have you been there? In the midst of your false confidence, in the midst of finding whether it's security or sufficiency or even satisfaction or pleasure, where, you, where you've gone about that from an illegitimate means, from the wrong source rather than the right way that God has provided for you. You have gone your own way, you've trusted in your own schemes, and almost immediately you realize it. I have sinned. And I hope you do what David does here. I have sinned greatly. I, he confesses his sin to the Lord. To take away the iniquity of your servant, I have acted very foolishly. You see, compare David here in this situation where he's threatened and he's incited to trust his resources. Compare that back to the Elah Valley in 1 Samuel 17 when the Philistines are facing the Israelites and Goliath stands in the valley shouting at them, Daring them to name a champion. The champion should have been Saul, but Saul measures himself against Goliath, and there's no way he's going down there. And David comes up in the middle of this, and David said, what's the problem? What's going on? And David goes out to meet that Philistine giant, and he says, you come to me with sword and spear and armor, but I come to you in the name of the Lord our God, whom you have defied. David is saying, God's got this. I don't need Saul's armor. I don't need Saul's sword. God's got this. And God directs the rock from the, from, the, from the sling to the giant's head, and the giant falls down as dead. But what happens here? Does David not remember that when the enemy comes and defies the true and the living God that Israel and David have nothing to fear unless they trust in themselves? When you're in trouble, put yourself in God's hands, not in your own resources. When you're in trouble, put yourself in God's hands. What should David have done? Well, what David should have done is what David now does. Do you remember those three options that he's given? He was given three options, three years, three months, three days. Three years of famine. That's just like Elijah and King Ahab. Remember that? Famine. Now, if you... If you have already been in BP Academy. Did I mention the BP Academy classes we're starting today? I was supposed to announce that also. I'm supposed to be up on BP Academy. I think I forgot. But if you missed BP Academy, because you're here this hour, you're not in those classes, maybe you didn't get to the class's first hour, but those classes are listed in the bulletin, and there's one more chance. There's a class starting at 6 o'clock tonight. You could, you could do a virtual tour of Israel going through maps and video and, and images to follow the stories and the lay and look of the land of the book. So that's still out there. That's still possible. But if you took a BP Academy class in Old Testament survey, you might recognize famine, running before your enemies, um, 
disease ravaging the people, you might recognize those as evidence of God's cursing because the people have not been walking with him. That's what's going on here. So David has three choices. And did you notice what he says there? Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of God. What David is doing here is he's repenting from his exact sin. His sin was, we've got this. We've got soldiers. We've got swords. We've got army. We can meet them. And now he says, oh no, don't let me fall into the hands of men. Don't let me face this enemy in battle. No, because without the Lord's strength, without the Lord's help, I cannot. I cannot stand before them. Let me instead trust myself into the hands of God. Why? Because his mercy is very great. Do not let me fall into the hands of men. David specifically repents of trusting in his own resources to meet a human attack, and he trusts himself in God's hands to meet a pestilence, a disease that he cannot defend himself from. But he trusts himself to God's mercies. When it comes to your own sin and self-reliance, will you put yourself in God's hands? How do we do that? We confess. We begin the Christian life that way. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 10, if we believe, confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then along the way in the Christian life, we continue to confess. In, in 1 John chapter 1, it says, if, if, if any of us say we, we don't sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. That's not true. We sin, of course we sin. What do we do with that? But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we fail, when we fall, when we transgress, when we trust ourselves instead of God, do we just knuckle down, I'll try harder next time, I'll do better next time, or do we hold that before the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I've done. I was wrong to trust myself instead of you. I was wrong to go my own way instead of your way. Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, would you pour out your mercy in the mess that I have made and the consequences that I have caused? Because sin will cost you. Like the ticket. You may be focused on other people's sin, which is far worse than yours, and yet you might get pulled over as well. I always wondered how they did that. How does one policeman pull over two cars? And I learned that day. I was worried about somebody else's sin. I was not paying attention to my own. There are serious consequences for sin. Sometimes those serious consequences are going to play out in ways that are going to cost you. And not only that, but in ways that are going to cost somebody else. In verse 14, why is it that that 70,000 men end up dying. Earlier, earlier in our Monday Bible study, somebody put it to me in a very good way. He said, okay, assuming you're the one that's supposed to go and console one of, the, one of the widows of one of these men, or maybe a young daughter of one of these men, and you're supposed to go and tell them, I'm sorry, but your father has died because of the king's decree and the numbering of his, of his armies. And how do you explain to the daughter why it would be right that her dad is dead because of what the king said? 
And we talked about, well, maybe there's confidence in these men as well as, as a false confidence in the king. But, you know, we tend to underestimate both God's holiness and the evil of sin. It's no surprise Adam did the same thing. Adam underestimated both God's holiness and how evil and disastrous it was to go against God's word. Sin always affects more people than we realize. Sin is evil against God, but it is also terribly destructive to people all around us, whether that's in obvious ways or in subtle ways. Our sin, our transgression affects other people because other people are attached to you. Other people are impacted by how your sin impacts you as well as how that sin may impact them. It doesn't take imagining um, putting yourself into one horrible news story after another to realize when that person chose to do that terrible thing, their whole family is caught up in it. Sin affects other people. Sin affects innocent victims. Our sin affects others around us. We know we are sinners. And yet too easily we will believe that God must be too harsh. Because we are sinners. We'll easily believe that God's too harsh because we are sinners. But we need to trust God's love and mercy more than we trust our own sense of justice. Let me say that again. We have a sense of what's right and wrong. We have a sense of justice. But, please, please, put more confidence in your assurance of God's mercy than in your understanding of justice. Trust God's mercy more than you trust your own sense of justice. That will serve you well. Default to this, I don't understand it, but this I know about God. And I'm going to have to leave it with Him because of who I know Him to be. In verses 15 and 18, the story turns on mercy. God sends an angel, is sending an angel to Jerusalem, but God says, stop. It's enough. Now it'd be good to remind ourselves, where is this playing out? All these events on the threshing floor of Ornan. So let me put a picture up there for you. Here's a picture of the threshing floor. I took out some of the side details because they're not so important. But up at the, up at the, in the bottom here, in the bottom left, that's the city of David. That's Jerusalem as it was in that time. It'll grow much, much larger than that over time. But that's Jerusalem at that time of David. And going up the hill above the town, which is on a narrow ridge line, and because it's on a narrow ridge line with steep walls, it's easy to defend, and that's why David has such a hard time taking it. But above, above Jerusalem, a little ways above, there's this flat-topped hill. And it's a perfect place for a threshing floor. A threshing floor needs a, a, wide, a, a flat area of land where you can run these sledges or sleds over the grain to break it up. And then you use pitchforks and you throw it up into the air on a windy day. And the chaff from the wheat blows away because it's lighter and the grains fall back down. And you can separate the wheat from the chaff. Now that's a very simple explanation of what's going on. But the location was everything for a threshing floor. Three things you need to know about threshing floors, location, 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 all right? And 
Ornan had a great location. Not only is it a great place for wind with the surrounding hills as well, but also he's really close to the cities. He's close to his customers. So when he, when he cracks the weed, he's then able to bring it into the city very easily. He's got a going concern. And yet notice it's still owned by a Jebusite. David is not this ethnic racist who gets rid of everybody else who's not from his clan or his tribe or his people. There are many of the peoples of the land that actually identify themselves with and join themselves to the people of Israel and Israel's God. In fact, David had men from this Philistine city of Gath in his army called the Gittites. So here's this, here's this um, Canaanite, this Jebusite named Ornan, and he's got this prime real estate and this plague is moving through the land. Maybe it's following the same path that Joab did on his, on, his, on his survey. I don't know. But it finally it comes back to Jerusalem. And it comes to this hilltop, to this threshing floor. And there the Lord says to the angel wielding his sword, the Lord says, stop. Does that remind you of something? Does that remind you of another Bible story? Does that remind you of Abraham and Isaac? That on this, this same hilltop, the mountains of Moriah, where Isaac and Abraham go together, and Isaac asks Abraham, well, here's the fire and here's the wood, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham answers him, the Lord will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And as they go to this mountaintop, and Abraham is about to offer his son, believing that God, to keep his promise, will even raise him from the dead if necessary. There the Lord says, stop. Abraham cannot offer his son there. God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. On that day, there's a ram caught in the thorns by its horns. It's a ram, not a lamb, because the lamb of God is still coming. Where does Jesus die? For our sins. Where does the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that when God provides himself a lamb for the sacrifice, where does that happen? In the same place, on the hills of Jerusalem. So we're supposed to put the story together. This is the place of God's mercy. This is where God's temple is going to be established. The house of the Lord will be here. The story turns on God's mercy. David says, put this sin on me. Don't hold the people guilty for it. But in this place, God is going to put the sin of the people upon himself in his own son who will die for us. Abraham and Isaac were still waiting for God to provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. But David is willing to sacrifice for genuine worship. Let's pick it up in verse 18. The angel of the Lord commanded through Gad to say to David, he should raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan. In this place, he should offer a burnt offering. And so David goes along, and David is going to offer his offering. And he goes to Ornan, and Ornan says, hey, the place is yours. I mean, his own sons have seen the angel of the Lord. They ran away expecting that they're going to be the next ones to die. Ornan wants God's anger, God's wrath, satisfied in a sacrifice in the place of his sons as much as anybody. He's willing to give. But David holds a unique responsibility. David will not let somebody else pay for this sacrifice. He's, he's willing to give the, the oxen. He's willing to give the wood for the fire. He's willing to give grain for the grain offering. He's willing to give the hill as the place. 
And David says, no, I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God, which costs me nothing. Worship also is going to cost David. And it does here. And it's a price that David is willing to pay. That's where we get the, the um, title. This is going to cost me. Whether it's sin or whether it's worship, it's going to cost me. Whether it's a ticket for speeding or it's a ticket to the zoo, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me something. The question is, which cost do I want to pay? Which cost do I want to give myself to? The pain of sin or the blessedness of worship? Self-reliance and sin will cost guilt and regret, regret, damage and hurt, pain and penalty. When David relies on himself or his army, it costs him terribly. But when David rejoices in God in worship, it still costs him significantly. Which price do you think David was happier to pay? Certainly the price of worship. That great theologian and commentary, commentator, Bob Dylan, said, you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. It's one or the other. You will pay the price of sin or you will pay a price of worship and following Jesus. There will be a price to be paid even though he, Jesus paid it all. There's a cost involved in worship just as there's a cost involved in sin. Romans Chapter 6 and verse 19 puts it this way. Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural, in, your natural limitations. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness that led to more lawlessness, so now present your members, present your body as slaves to righteousness that lead to sanctification. He goes on in that passage to say, what benefit do you, did you have from those things of which you're now ashamed? What was the benefit of the price that you paid for sin? No, instead, but, the, but rather you devote yourself to righteousness. You devote yourself to the worship of God, and that has its benefits of blessing into eternal life. It's no comparison. True worship will cost you something. It will mean giving up time and treasure. It will mean using your talents to serve others, storing up treasure in heaven instead of here and now. Worship will cost you blood and sweat and tears and treasure for purposes and blessings that you might not see the fulfillment of immediately, but will last into eternity. Which cost will you choose? Pain or purpose? Temporary gain or eternal glory? Misery or meaningful? Heartache for nothing or hard work for eternal things? Worship will cost you. Worship will cost you time on Sunday morning, a tithe given month by month. Worship will cost you extra hours devoted to serve or to learn. Worship will cost you building for others who aren't even here yet. It, it'll cost you getting here extra early to be ready to lead on the worship team as we were blessed by this morning. Worship will cost you Extra time preparing to teach adults or children, caring for others in the nursery or in a small group. Yes, worship will cost you. But it will be worth it all when we see Jesus.
Our purpose statement as a church is to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. And that'll cost us something. But it's a far better price to pay for our sakes and for theirs. Jesus said it'll cost us something. He said, if anyone would be my disciple, my learning of me, he said, then deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. It cost him everything. But knowing him in his way will cost us something. And it will be worth it. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you help us to be willing? Lord, would you help us to even realize the cost? Lord, to count it, just like the, the children would, would save up for that delightful ticket of entrance into something that they can't wait to get to. Lord, would you give us that sense not merely about eternity, but about the joy in walking with you, the joy in sharing in your sacrifice, whatever that might be, the joy of knowing that this I do that pleases the Lord rather than I think would please me, though it gives my Father grief. So, Father... Would you help us to count the cost, indeed, but, Lord, to be willing to devote ourselves to that cost which is worthy and which matters for your purposes and your glory. And let us give ourselves to that, we pray, in Jesus' name, knowing in your promise that following you will be worth it.